Welcome to Me, Myself, and Millie. This is season five of the show. I'm your host, Millie Brooks. This is a show about infertility and different pathways to parenthood, and this is episode three of season five. It's December 2021, and this is a big holiday week for a lot of people when you might be seeing family and hopefully no one asks you a single question about your reproductive health because we all know infertility doesn't pair well with turkey or ham. Anyways, on our show today is Sarah Burke Dimitrova. Sarah, it is so wonderful to have you on the show. How are you? Hey, it's great to be here. I'm doing well. Thanks, Millie. Um, give us a small introduction for those of you that, or for the, the, the listeners that are not familiar with you, give us a small intro into your world, what you do, where you are from, and what your home life is like. Sure. So I currently live on Vancouver Island, um, so on the west coast of Canada, with my husband, Andre, and our IVF rainbow baby, Lexi. Um, we moved to the West Coast from Toronto when I was pregnant. So we moved while I was pregnant during a pandemic, um, just almost a little over, almost a year ago. And um, Andre and I met in Montreal. We've lived in Montreal, New York City, Baltimore, Toronto. So lots of places over uh, the course of our relationship. And we've finally landed here. And Right now, I'm on parental leave uh, from my job in healthcare policy for a government agency. So I've studied public health with a focus on reproductive and perinatal health. And so that's kind of my my background. Um, I didn't know a lot about infertility, but I knew a lot about pregnancy and reproductive health before infertility was part of my world. That is so interesting. Did... um. Looking back on your education, do you kind of wish that you had more information about infertility? Yeah, I would say that, you know, I, I worked alongside midwives and doulas. Um, I, I helped found this group that was um, helping people with birth trauma. Like I, I was very well versed in, in that world and also in sexual and reproductive health and rights. And very little of what I was focused on and the people that I knew and worked with uh, was about infertility or pregnancy loss. So it was really like a blind spot that I had. And of course, it came up with some of my studies, more so just talking about, you know, adverse health impacts and things like that, but not necessarily the, the experiences that people have uh, trying to grow their families. Now, is this a way of you saying you work for the government? Oh, I mean, I um, I do and I don't. So employer... <laughs> some people are kind of like, you know, <laughs> they just don't really want to say it, but they do. But they do. So just tell, you know, tell us where you land on the the Canadian government spectrum. <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, my the agency I work for. Um, is from the provincial government in Ontario. And so it's it's not directly the government or the public service, as we would call it here. Um, we're sort of an arm's length agency. So it means we're still like publicly funded, um, but not directly 
under kind of the government umbrella, I guess. It's a bit of like that middle ground between being like a nonprofit, non-government agency um, and being directly for the government. Um, and just lots of changes over the last few years, even with how some of that agency work has been organized. So that's kind of my long-winded yes and no answer. Okay, I think I got it. So like on a daily basis, if you were working right now, mm-hmm. what what does your day-to-day look like at work? Um, a, yeah, a lot of the work um, that I've been doing has been on guidance for quality care. So I haven't worked directly on anything related to infertility, although I was working for a small period of time on um, what quality care would look like for people experiencing miscarriage. And I actually had to step away from that work because we were just starting fertility treatments and it was just too close to home. So one of my wonderful colleagues um, who has also worked for a long time with midwives and birth work in general took over that work and did really well um, with it. But so in terms of when we are looking at like what would high quality care look like if someone needs to go to the hospital or when they're accessing primary care, we work with um, healthcare professionals. So we bring together committees of experts and we work with them to draft these documents that then go out into the world, back out to other healthcare professionals to tell them, you know, this is what we expect sort of as a government agency, since healthcare is is funded right through the government in Canada. um, This is what we would expect high quality care to look like for various conditions. So over the last um, few years, I worked on um, respiratory health conditions uh, around, around that. So wow, well that's my day. It's still a lot of email though. Like it's it sounds really cool, but still like a lot of like being on email and then like phone calls and then drafting lots of documents. So lots of writing, um, synthesizing in evidence and, and reading journal articles and that kind of thing. Got it. Well, respiratory illnesses, I mean, hot topic for the past two years. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Well, anyways, let's shift to our topic today um, about banking embryos, which felt very important to you to talk about. And let's tell us why that is and what your experience has been with um, banking embryos. Sure. So I didn't really know about banking embryos when I you know, started my own path around treatment or when I started experiencing infertility. Um, I guess the closest I knew of something like that was people who would do, you know, one cycle and have a lot of embryos from that one cycle. And so they would have them frozen and um, keep them for later family building. But I had never really heard of trying to do multiple cycles in a row or something like that to to have a number of embryos and bank them for later use. Um, It wasn't something that I was exposed to right from the beginning. I guess once I knew more about it, I heard more and more about people doing it. So I thought it would be um, interesting for us to chat about so that people know it might be an option for them. Perhaps especially if with a first cycle, they're not getting a lot of embryos or the number of embryos they feel is right for them for their family planning. Got it. And so you had back-to-back retrievals. Tell us about that. Yeah. I'm, if you'd like, I can start a little bit before we, we got into those back-to-back retrievals. Yeah, yeah. Start wherever, you know, wherever it feels right. 
<laughs> Thanks, Lily. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, we started um, trying to conceive in spring 2017 and welcomed Lexi in spring 2021. So um, it was, you know, four years of, uh, of trying on our own and then treatment um, and then this, um, this pregnancy after loss. And when we started trying, very similar to other people, you know, we tried on our own. I um, started learning how to chart my cycle. I thought stuff might be off because I was having a lot of spotting. But, you know, my primary care provider just said, keep trying. You're young and healthy and all of that. Um, If you don't conceive by around the one-year mark, come back and see me. I'll refer you out to fertility clinic, right? Like it's the classic story. Um, So about a year in, we went to a fertility clinic that we could self-refer to and our primary care provider had referred us to another fertility clinic as well. So we did our first testing and all of the, you know, all of the barrage of tests that people do and things looked good, right? Like we were sort of on the edge of normal for a few things. They found a polyp um, in my uterus that eventually actually went away on its own. And other than me having polycystic ovaries, but then not having any of the blood work that would, you know, sort of diagnose me with PCOS, everything seemed fine. And so we kept trying um, for a while on our own before we went back to a fertility clinic to sort of get started with treatment. So um, at technically our second fertility clinic is where we did two IUI cycles that were unsuccessful um, and then sort of moved into to starting to do IVF. So when we um, when we started the IVF process, our first um, reproductive endocrinologist that we worked with for that, you know, she was really hopeful. Never made me feel like we. Um, I mean, we never know with with treatment, right, and infertility. But there was never any um, warning that we might not get good results, or you know, she was very much like, "You'll do IVF. We'll get some embryos." We'll do a transfer, right? Like it kind of seemed not for sure, but mm-hmm. yeah, lots of people. There weren't any red flags and she was exactly. hopeful. Yeah. Things were looking good. Yeah. And I had like pretty low stimulation. I mean, like f- fair stimulation, not super high in terms of the retrieval cycle. And, um, you know, we went forward. So I had pretty high hopes, I think, for our first IVF, despite already starting to be within the community and on Instagram. Um, I knew it could go wrong but I had high hopes for my own, you know, circumstances for, for us. Um, and then I, you know, we saw lots of follicles growing during monitoring. And then I quickly learned about the IVF funnel, right? Like what you see on the monitoring might not be the same as what you get from the retrieval and then so on in terms of embryo development. So, you know, in my case, um, 27 follicles, like large follicles were aspirated during the retrieval and we only got 10 eggs. So it was almost like one third of what we would have, might, I mean, we probably weren't going to get 30 eggs, but 10 eggs was still a lot less than I would have expected from, you know, the procedure and how it happened. Yeah. That's a pretty big drop off. I would feel that would be a hard, yeah. you know, realization to swallow. Yeah. And especially with polycystic ovaries, right? Like for a lot of people, even though for me, you know, some people have like 50 follicles growing, like that's a lot, but um having 10 eggs and knowing that we weren't going to get 10 embryos out of those felt really crushing. Um, and then we got three embryos out of those 10 eggs. We did genetic testing and two of them were euploid or, you know, normal had all their chromosomes. So, you know, 
going from this is going to be great, we're going to do an IVF cycle, and then having two embryos was quite disappointing. And at the same time, feeling really grateful we had those two embryos. And you said you did do testing on those? Yes. So those were the two that were normal. Yeah. Got it. So two out of three. Mm -hmm. And so we moved into a transfer cycle from there because that was sort of like, okay, you've got two embryos, you're going to transfer, right? Nothing else was ever presented as an option to us at the time. And we, you know, and maybe I should mention related to that, like we hope to have two children. And we pretty much knew that two embryos was not going to equal two children. But we never, like our reproductive endocrinologist never really had those conversations with us. And it wasn't brought up too much. So, you know, we had the two embryos, we moved into a transfer cycle. um, And unfortunately, we, um, I mean, I got pregnant, but we lost that pregnancy at nine weeks with no explanation, right? Normal embryo, nothing, again, no red flags. Um, I saw a heartbeat. And then at the following um, ultrasound, there was no heartbeat. Mm. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was like extremely difficult. Um, The experience with the fertility clinic around the miscarriage was not great either. Um, But, you know, we had another embryo. At that point, I had been connecting with people for longer, right? Like now we're like months into doing IVF rather than just right at the beginning. And so in my mind, I thought to myself, we've got one embryo and we want more than one child. So we need more embryos. And so that's what we went into with our doctor, right? Like to, to speak about what next steps would be. And, you know, our doctor really wanted us to just transfer. Like, mm. just don't even worry about it. Um, there was even a little bit of like, maybe you won't need IVF for a second baby. Wow. Yeah. Cause like, I, I mean, that was one of the first things my doctor asked me. It was like, what are your family goals? Like mm-hmm. what, what, you know, what do you want your family to look like? And from there, she made a decision about protocols. But it sounds like for you, they were hoping that like you would do IVF once and then not need it again. I mean, I I can't explain (laughs) what this doctor had in her mind. And, you know, I think even for me, it it was often difficult. I would have like um, uh, uh, white coat syndrome, you know, going in, speaking to our doctor, I'd have all these questions and then I'd kind of freeze in front of her. So when that was said, I sort of looked at her and said, what are the statistics on that? Mm, mm, <laughs> like, good for how you. many of people like me are going to go on and have like next transfer work, have their baby and then just have a, a pregnancy. It happens. And that's wonderful. Right. Like, and no one should ever feel guilty or anything if they, um, if they have a pregnancy unassisted, you know, a spontaneous pregnancy after treatment, that's wonderful. It doesn't erase the infertility and everything people go through. Um, and yet, you know, I didn't want that to be our fallback plan <laughs> like that I would yeah. miraculously, you know, become pregnant. So, you know, we sort of told our doctor, well, no, like our plan is we'd like to have more than one child. Um, and, you know, like just so many considerations for me. So for example, um, I, I just knew how intense doing stimulation and doing an IVF retrieval was, 
in my mind, if I could avoid it, I didn't want to do that with a baby or a toddler in my life, mm. right? Like mm. I wanted to be thinking about if I can be doing a transfer instead of having to do a retrieval all over again with now this tiny human to take care of, mm. that would be better for me, right? Um, it's not accessible to everyone, but in my case, we thought we might be able to plan for that. Um, and then also why not favor younger eggs and sperm, right? Like, because if I were to have a pregnancy, have a baby, all of that, it, it just like adds a bit more time. Um, and we know, you know, younger eggs and sperm are typically better. So with all, with all of that, we did an, another IVF cycle with that clinic. Our doctor was supportive, like almost reluctantly. Um, and we, you know, I don't have a lot of, I don't really like to have regrets, but doing that IVF cycle with that clinic is probably as close to regret as I get. Not, um, mostly because I didn't follow my gut. When we started that cycle, the baseline didn't look as good. The first monitoring was a bit off in terms of what we were seeing with growth. It just like didn't feel right for me in my gut. And my doctor kept saying, it's fine. Everything's going to be okay. I'm really happy with the numbers. And then we essentially had a failed cycle. We had um, two embryos and neither of them were normal. So we got no embryos out of that cycle. Mm. So it's not something you can predict, of course. And so you did two cycles at that clinic. We did two at that clinic that were okay. a few months apart, right? Separated with the pregnancy uh, and the miscarriage and recovery from that um, from that loss. And so, you know, two cycles in and we've got one embryo left. Um, and that's when we decided to look into what at that point I had started hearing of people doing multiple cycles in a row to try to bank embryos, to try to batch test them as well. So if you're not getting a lot of embryos per cycle, waiting to do a few and then sending all of those biopsies to be tested all at once instead of doing like one cycle a few months apart. And we knew of someone who was working with another clinic in our area where that's sort of what she had been recommended, right? She did one cycle and then they were like, well, mate, you might want to consider doing two or three um, all you know, sort of in a, in a few months time, pretty close together. And so we spoke to our, you know, again, that, that doctor about it and they were really, they were just like, weren't really encouraging doing that. They were kind of back to like transfer the embryo you have. And so we uh, consulted another reproductive endocrinologist at a new clinic and we, yeah, that often does that. They often do multiple cycles. They do their genetic testing on site. It's the only clinic in Canada that does their own genetic testing. And they were, yeah, super supportive. Their patient flow is really different also when you're doing a cycle and it was a better fit for my needs. And we can maybe talk about that um, in like a bit later, but we went with that clinic, you know, we did the switch and we started with an IVF cycle with the plan to do two or three um, in a row, depending on results, um, with also a very different protocol, like much higher stimulation to try to get like more embryos and, and see if we could avoid doing multiple cycles if needed. Mm -hmm. So we ended up doing two back-to-back -back cycles. Um, and in fact, they ended up like just the way that it happened. I had two retrievals in February, 2020. So one like at the beginning of the month and one sort of at the end of the month. And 
um, much better results from those two cycles. So we kind of like took a few weeks break to just sort of like decide if we we're going to do another one or not. And then you might see where this is going. It was March, 2020. Co the COVID pandemic was declared and all treatment shut down. So the decision to maybe do another cycle or not was not even in our hands anymore. We, we couldn't proceed with treatment at that time. And because we had much better results than we anticipated in terms of number of embryos before genetic testing, we decided to, you know, hold off on doing any more IVF cycles. And um, we were really lucky that we could ask our clinic to do the genetic testing, even though, you know, treatment wasn't moving forward, the lab was still operational. So they were able to do that. And can you talk a little bit about the success that you had with those two cycles? Sure. So. Yeah, we, I mean, I, I feel like I've spoken to a few different people about this. And sometimes when I um, post about it, you know, my experience on Instagram, people will ask like what you did differently. And in our case, I feel like we just did everything different. Um, mm. This new reproductive endocrinologist, you know, we kind of went from unexplained infertility to her identifying some issues, right? Like she took the polycystic ovaries a bit more seriously, I guess. Um, so I started metformin. Um, my, you know, the sperm analysis was a little low on uh, normal morphology. So we did um, ICSI, but with where they look at the morphology a bit more closely. So sometimes it's called IMSI or PIXI. Mm -hmm. PIXI, yep. Yeah. So we did that. Um, I had a much, like I was using different medication for the stimulation protocol, much higher doses. A whole different recipe. Right. Yeah. And I was like on CoQ10 for longer because I had been doing those other cycles from before. I had been doing acupuncture longer, you know, who knows exactly which part of it worked best. And then a different lab, of course. Mm -hmm. And so with two cycles, two back-to-back -back cycles, we got nine embryos. When previously from two cycles, we had had five. And were those, those were the nine embryos that were sent off to genetic testing? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And do you know, and yeah, from those, what did you get? We got seven. Okay. We got seven normal embryos out of nine, which was incredible. Mm-hmm. Right. Incredible results. And the two others um, were actually mosaic and not completely abnormal either. So, you know, for now, we definitely, you know, having seven normal, um, just are focused on those. But if ever we needed to explore the idea of using mosaic, we have a couple as well. So incredible results for us. Um, we, we were just so thrilled to be able to have those embryos for our, yeah, like you mentioned before, right? Our family planning and building goals, like mm -hmm. what we hoped. Um, and once we could, once, um, once treatment resumed, we were able to do a frozen embryo transfer, and that frozen transfer resulted in a blighted ovum. Um, I had a missed miscarriage at seven weeks. So, right, like even that experience for me was like, okay, well, if we had done that other transfer, potentially we would have then been at the point of starting retrievals all over again, right? If we think about what right. my former reproductive endocrinologist was recommending for us to do. Yeah. Yeah. So then we had, you know, more embryos. We took a little bit of time to do some testing and then we did another transfer that brought us Lexi. Amazing. And that transfer was when? Um, October 
of last year, October 2020. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Got it. And now we have five embryos banked at our last clinic um, and one remaining embryo at our first clinic. So all our embryos are in Toronto and we're on the West Coast. So. Okay. Got it. So you do need to travel to Toronto for any future transfers. Yeah, travel or moving them here. We haven't quite decided. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of talked about this a little bit as you were sharing about your story, but can you reveal a little bit more about your decision to switch clinics? Um, because I think this happens to a lot of people where we all feel some unnecessary guilt leaving a physician for a bevy of different reasons. Um but you sort of, you had a feel, a bad feeling about it from the very beginning, almost. Yeah. I think with our former physician, there was just never really a good fit. At first it was, at first it was okay. And we were willing to sort of just like start treatment and we could sort of get in early um, and get going. Right. So that felt really important at the time. And I think for a lot of people, when they start out with treatment, you know, if they, if they have a long wait when they first um, have a first appointment or referrals and all that kind of thing, they just want to get started and get going. But then once you have a bit of a, more of an experience and start talking to more people, you realize maybe there are more things that you need to consider in terms of the care you're getting, the fit with the physician, the care you're getting from the clinic. Um, lots of that. But I think in general, it can be really hard to advocate for ourselves, right? I mentioned like I would get white coat syndrome, despite how my background, my academic and professional background is like working with healthcare professionals and all of it, I would still like freeze. So we, before we switched clinics, we did that consult with the other clinic. We didn't tell our former doctor, hey, we're going to see other people, right? We didn't say anything. I think I think our doctor may have had an inkling because our last appointment with her, we went in with a list of questions, like literally Millie, I printed off my questions and gave her a copy. <laughs> I had my copy. I gave her a copy. It was like five or eight pages of questions. Oh, you can see on the next page, this yes. is um, section 2.1. <laughs> almost. That's almost what it was like. That's hilarious. I think I had one of my friends revise them. I was like, what do you think? Am I missing any questions? <laughs> oh, man, that is a true friend to not just get up and walk away or yeah, yeah. raise an eyebrow. Um, but yeah, so I think, you know, at that point, our former doctor was sort of turning on the charm and a little bit more like, well, we could do something different and I could start to explore these things. But at that point, it was a little too late, right? We had already been so disappointed. Um, I mentioned briefly that, with the with the miscarriage that I had with that clinic, I had a really bad experience. Like I felt completely abandoned by our physician. The way that, you know, we found out about it was very much one of those classic, like the ultrasound technician is allowed to say anything. So they don't say anything and they tell you to go talk to your doctor. And then we waited in the waiting room for an hour and our doctor was like, oh, it looks like it's a miscarriage while she was like clicking on her computer. Like it was just awful. And the follow-up was almost non-existent. Um, you know, it made me never want to have a pregnancy with that clinic again because I was afraid of how I would be treated and, and what would happen. 
And they just didn't really seem interested in doing the right care for us. They seemed like they had a way that they worked their protocols. And if that's not what you needed, well, too bad, <laughs> a little bit. And so, you know, I we never told our doctor we were switching clinics. And we just stopped going to them. We just stopped going to that clinic and that doctor. Um, when we saw our new reproductive endocrinologist, I actually really appreciated that you know, she knew we were somewhere else, like she saw the results from that other clinic. And she encouraged us to just keep our, our embryo there. She said, mm-hmm. who knows, you may want to go back to them, right? Like she was pretty open about the fact that people switch clinics, people get second opinions, and it's really not a big deal, mm-hmm. which um, was just like a breath of, breath of fresh air to be with a doctor who was really open yeah. about that. I would appreciate that. Yeah, if like a doctor clearly from the start is not doesn't take things personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And they shouldn't, right? Um, I talked about it in therapy too, right? Like I talked to my therapist about switching clinics and or even, you know, pushing back with my former physician or advocating for myself. And, she, you know, my therapist really encouraged me to not try to take care of my healthcare professional. She was like, if they need therapy, that's their own thing. You know? Oh, wow. What a concept. Holy crap. That is, <laughs> I mean, that you got your money's worth with that, yeah. that whole philosophy. Like, yeah. I, oh, yeah, I don't take care of my healthcare provider. No, right? No. Like if they're taking it personally, they can go to their own therapy. Like if they can yes. um just like we have to not take care of our therapists. Then usually mm-hmm. therapists are very good at reminding us of that, like telling us like no, no, this is not your role. Like I have my own therapist. Like you just tell me what you need to tell me. But not all of our healthcare providers are like that, right? Of letting us know that it's not our role to take care of their feelings or, you know, we have to be, of course, respectful in our um, communication and everything, but infertility is difficult. These experiences are traumatic and and sometimes, yeah, we need to be able to just have our, our feelings and, uh, and express ourselves with our providers, right. And not be taking care of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's a whole host of, of reasons, but in some ways, we chose to switch clinics because we were leaving one clinic, right? We were leaving because of reasons that we were dissatisfied. And also we were going with a new clinic because there were things we wanted. So it wasn't just, we're dissatisfied with this one. We're going to go with like something else that's also bad. We were going with a clinic where um, despite it being very busy, I didn't feel like a number the way their patient flow is organized meant that I was having contact with my doctor at every monitoring appointment. So through IVF cycles, transfer cycle, early pregnancy monitoring, there's just a lot more connection with the person making decisions about your care. And that was important to me, especially at the point we were at in our um, fertility treatment. So that dovetails really Good into my next question. Um, multiple rounds of IVF can be incredibly draining on people in many different ways. How can people prote- protect themselves from the exhaustive process? Yeah, I think that's so true, Millie. It it really is exhausting. Um, I would say a few different things. So, I mean, I've mentioned therapy. I think therapy is great. Um, but if that's not accessible or not quite right for some folks, I think 
having peers, so other other people who are going through treatment or who aren't, but who are very supportive and going to be empathetic, having those those people in your life to talk to, so to vent about what's going on, to receive encouragement, to yeah, just like really feel that support. So whatever feels best, right? Like if some people may be getting it from their reproductive endocrinologist or the nurses at their clinic, that's great. That's not the case for most of us. So I think surrounding yourself with like the team that you need, right? Whether that's also your primary care provider, a therapist, um, you know, for some people, it might be that they're, they have a personal trainer because they, you know, exercising is really helpful for their mental health and their physical health, whatever you need in terms of like building your care team, I think is really helpful. And identifying like easy self-care, right? Like we often talk about how self-care um, is like going to the spa and like <laughs> these expensive things, but so many people, um, out there are, you know, reframing that narrative of that it doesn't have to be like that, right? It can be just like having your books that you love and you're going to read read that so you're distracted and also like feeling happy and not just scrolling Instagram. Or if scrolling Instagram is your happy place and your distraction, then do that, right? Um, podcasts, TV shows, like whatever, whatever people need in terms of, of a bit of distraction from all the waiting, all the news, all of those like things that happen during those cycles, I think is really great. Um, and, you know, I'm a big fan of prepping meals and snacks in advance of when you're having treatment, especially if you're doing like back-to-back stuff, you're in recovery, um, yeah, or identifying where you're going to order from, like take the mental load off. If it's that, like having your partner or friends or family like drop off food or do things that are going to feel supportive for you. I think that can be really helpful. I remember watching you on Instagram do meal prep before Lexi arrived. Yeah. Yes. A lot. You are a meal prep queen. (laughs) I love it. We like food a lot in our house. So it's important for us to have it ready. Um, yeah, and I, I did like mini versions of that for egg retrievals. I would prep like the food that I was going to eat for the couple days after retrieval or the snacks I was going to have. Like that was ready, right? Like having the electrolyte drinks and the protein rich foods and the salty snacks. Uh, I wasn't going to the store on the way home from the retrieval, right? Like I was kind of doing that in advance and then just takes a lot of pressure off. And, you know, I think part of that exhaustive process too is. I've spoken to people, I feel like this, these conversations happen in um, private messages and, and direct messages. But one of my biggest pieces of advice, I feel like um, people don't realize how coming off retrieval meds and, and coming, you know, after a retrieval, and it's a super ovulation, right? Like you have multiple follicles, multiple eggs that are, that are um, ovulating. And that brings on the most intense PMS that I've ever experienced. And when you, like when I had it once, I was like, okay, this is really intense. But then as I had it, you know, a second time, a third time, a fourth time, I can confirm it, it's emotionally draining. And that is what happens. So my g- biggest piece of advice for people, especially if they're maybe going through multiple, is that it's normal. Um, it's almost like a post-retrieval blues. And I feel like people don't talk about it, right? Like you're coming off of the hormones, you're literally withdrawing from them, progesterone shoots up, 
and that's our PMS hormone because you know you've just ovulated all these eggs and you're also getting information about embryos fertilization embryo development all of this stuff and you're you're just like emotionally drained so even just knowing that you're not alone it happens it's pretty normal like a pretty normal process i think can um, help people prepare or even just know in the moment that they're going to be okay it's going you're it's going to be okay after right when you get your period and you kind of move on to your next cycle. Mm-hmm. Or if you're just a nutcase all the time, you won't notice it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like that was me. I'm just crazy all the time. So I didn't really, it didn't even register right. to me that I was um, coming off a crazy amount of drugs. <laughs> um, what makes your blood boil about infertility? Um. For me, I think it's how misunderstood the heartache is. Like how I feel like people really focus on, like people outside the infertility world, how hard it is physically. Doing the shots and having the procedures, they kind of get the physical part, but the emotional is just as painful, sometimes more. Um, And so many of us feel alone with that. Um, And Millie, I asked my husband what he what he thought about this. Can I share his answer? Please, please. So when I asked him last night, what makes it like that this was going to be a question that you might ask me. And he said, um, the way that, um, almost like the, the industry can prey on the desperation and vulnerability of people Mm -hmm. is what makes his blood boil. So all of the, do we know if this is going to help? No, but you should do it anyway. Like all of the add-ons, all of the, and a lot of it is uncertainty around evidence, right? When I talk about high quality care at the beginning of around my work, there's stuff that we just don't know yet about infertility and about reproduction. And we want to try everything we can. Um, But he mentioned that what makes his blood boil is is sometimes it being like, like they're preying on that, right? Like that Mm -hmm. it's very expensive to do those add-ons. It's, you know, our vulnerability, our desperation, our need to not have regrets about each of those cycles. And every time we try something, um, it is just uh, can sometimes be not genuine concern or care, right? Like it almost mm-hmm. seems like they're trying to. It feels predatory, maybe. Predatory. Yes, exactly. Predatory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That is, I, I absolutely agree with him in that way. I think it I think it does feel like it does it feels like your future something that is so free for somebody else. I don't know. I'm I'm just looking at a cash register in my mind. <laughs> yes. And people are just like, you know, slamming down buttons on this old cash register. Um that's what it feels like. Yeah, absolutely. Well, how can people follow you and connect with you? Um, this has been such a wonderful conversation, Sarah. And I I didn't even know about your background and how that was just such a – that's a great layer to this conversation too. So how can people connect with you? Uh, yeah, so they can find me on Instagram at West Coast IVF Mama, M-A-M-A. Um, in probably a few months, we'll be starting to think about 
a sibling and what getting ready for a transfer or moving embryos or traveling and all that looks like. So, um, yeah, I guess people can stay tuned. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thanks, Millie. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Me, Myself, and Millie. Follow us on Instagram at Me, Myself, Millie for more podcast updates. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and share on social media. A special thanks to my husband, Rowan Brooks, for technical support and Cal Reichenbach, who did all the music you heard in this episode. You can check him out at calzonemusic.com. Thanks, cutie bums, and see you next week. Bye.